because there's a really unique thing that happens in this passage where we get to see hope in action. So I feel like we're standing right on the edge of panic in America. We're not there. There's been a lot of steps, cautionary things. Um, but it doesn't it feel like that? We're right. You know, we're doing our best to avoid the fate of Italy and Iran and China and taking these steps. But you, you just feel like you're right on the verge of it. And I feel like in some ways, um, and it may not be as much for you, but for many people, there's a, just a lingering fear that no matter what I do, it may not be enough. And, um, and there's this sense of hopelessness, which kind of pervades uh, a lot of people right now. And it's a hopelessness that is sort of around the world in a very unique way. And I feel like as Christians, we are uniquely equipped to actually speak to hope in the face of situations that can seem hopeless. And so here we see an example of a man, Paul, who's in chains, and he's speaking the message of hope to the king and the queen and the governor of the land. And at the end of it, he says, I wish that you were like me, except for the chains. And I got to thinking, Lord, equip us to be people who have hope in the resurrection and, in, and this is kind of cool. I'm going to attribute this to Paul Miller. All the many resurrections that happen in our lives before the final resurrection. And we'll explain that idea as we go along. And so um, let's, uh, let's begin by reading from uh, verse 1. It's Acts 26. And it is, um, Paul was in Jerusalem. Remember last week? It was the worst trial ever. It totally devolved into like a fist fight. He's yanked out of there, sent to the barracks. We're two years later, okay? We're only three chapters later, but we're two years later in the life of Paul, and he is about to go to Caesar. He's appealed his trial to Caesar. Festus needs to write some kind of summary of what this is about, and Festus has now just been in there for two weeks about. The other governor, Felix, left. And, and so Festus says, I need you to tell us you know, why you're an innocent man. Explain yourself to us, Paul. We need to write a summary and send it with you to Caesar. So here we go. So Agrippa was the king invited to hear this along with Festus. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning of my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God made to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I'm going to pause there. Um, and, and talk for a little bit and then go a little further. So he's beginning his defense and he's explaining that at the centerpiece of it all is that he believes in the resurrection of the dead. 
the fear that drives everything going around right now isn't that you will get a fever, right? It's that you'll die. The fear that's moving all of it. I mean, we've all, if you, have any of you lived through the flu? I, I've gotten the flu almost every year for all my life. The people aren't afraid of getting the flu. They're afraid of getting killed by it, right? That's what makes what's happening right now different from other times because they see it's happened in other countries. And it really, I don't know for you guys, it really struck home for me when I walked, I visited one of our parishioners, uh, Miss Shirley, uh, Norbert's personal care. And, and just as I walked into that place and saw the state of all of those elderly people, I thought, oh man, they really hit me. Like if, if the flu entered this building, it would be a disaster. It would be an absolute disaster. And so even though we feel generally healthy in my house, as we recognize we have many buildings like that, many elderly neighbors, we start to realize, um, you know, those are the vulnerable points and the fear, again, isn't that everyone will get a, a, a fever. It's that death will come. Paul was not standing before these three people to promise them that a famine wouldn't come. He wasn't standing before them promising that a disease wouldn't spread. Right? Paul's hope was not in any short-term solution to personal health or politics. Paul's hope was grounded in the ancient promise that God made. He said, look at that in verse 6. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God made, or the promise made by God to our fathers. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that out of their bloodlines, a Messiah would come who would bring light to all the nations, Right? And that he would, that the glory of God would actually fill the earth as salvation goes from every tribe and every language and tongue, nation after nation after nation. And part of that promise, right, which we looked at last week, made explicit in Daniel and Isaiah, was that there would be a resurrection from the dead. Some would be resurrected to life. And according to Daniel and other places, some will be resurrected to everlasting shame. And so Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah sent by God, whom Paul is proud to stand before the highest people of his day and say, this is the hope of Israel. This is who my hope is set on. In the midst of his chains, when he's feeling, you might feel very defeated at that moment, right? His hope never shifts off Jesus Christ, and it never, ever backs away from bringing that promise to people he fears don't share it. Agrippa was not a good king. He had a very bad reputation. Bernice was his sister, and they were in a not good relationship. And it was the talk of Rome for years. That's who he's talking to. He knows they don't have Jesus Christ. He knows that despite all of their health and all of their riches and all of their wealth, they don't have hope the way he has hope, and the way you and I have hope if we're in Christ. You know, I pray uh, just every day, you know, when we gathered on Friday, we had a one o'clock prayer meeting. You know, we pray that uh, scientists would be able to vaccinate, that there would be a cure, that our city would be preserved, that the worst thing that happened is a couple people get the flu, right? That's my prayer. 
My prayer is that places like Norbert's and other places stay as healthy as they can stay. But my, our, our hope can't be built on whether God answers that prayer or not. Does that make sense? The will of God may not be to keep Pittsburgh from getting sick, right? The will of God may be to send in a time of trial and hardship. That might be the will of God. Our hope has to be built on something stronger than the reaction to the current crisis. And it is, right? It's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that we have a hope that is future-oriented and yet is as concrete as everything we experience today. And that gives us tremendous hope in the face of fear because fear is all about what will happen next, right? Fear is future-oriented too. So fear and hope combat in your hearts. Which one of them is drawing the future that you need to see? Fear says you have to worry, you have to panic, you have to, because you're not sure what God will do. Hope says, you know what? No matter what God wills, I'm in his hands. And my eternity is secure in the Lord. And he's with me. And not a hair falls from my head that he doesn't know about. Right? There's going to be pastors today who are going to be tempted to preach kind of a rah-rah, God will keep you from all harm message. That might make people walk away and feel good, but that's not actually biblical. Paul ultimately was martyred. Right? Diseases do come. The hope that we have isn't that we will live a harm-free, suffering-free life. In fact, Jesus says, you're going to suffer for me. And when you do, I want you to rejoice in that suffering. I want you to count it joy when you share in the fellowship of my suffering. Because in that, you're experiencing more of the death of yourself. But out of that is going to come the resurrection of your spirit. You're going to become a more mature Christian because you suffered. That's when I was talking about Paul Miller early on. He, Jamie gave me a book of his called The J-Curve, and he talks about the many resurrections we go through as believers. And they sometimes travel through the road of suffering. They sometimes travel through the road of loving someone else sacrificially. And sometimes they travel through the, the road of our own sin being exposed. Each one of those, suffering, love, and sin, they lead us on this road where we feel like we're dying at some point. There's some part of us that is genuinely hurt and in pain. And he says, if you don't quit on that, if you pray and stay and reach out to the Holy Spirit in that times, God will resurrect you. God will bring you out through that time. Not just in the final resurrection, amen, that's coming. But in that day too, in the real lifetime where you come through that suffering, where you've sacrificed in love for someone, and you, you've made that commitment, but you've come through it, and you experience the lessening of yourself and the increasing of Jesus Christ in your heart. If that makes sense, which is really a, a kind of a long way of saying, we grow when we love people sacrificially. We grow when we suffer and trust in the Lord. And we grow when we see our sin and we repent of it. Those are three huge age we grows. And so as we face something like the coronavirus, which threatens to bring a lot of suffering, we know that for the life of the Christian, it can also be a time of tremendous growth because we're going to see how frail and fragile we are and we're going to be looking to God and we're going to see him work in our life. I love Paul's question in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. 
He's like, look, if God made the world, what are a few non-functioning molecules? What is a heart that doesn't beat? How can the creator of all things not renew it all at his will? He says, why do you think that's incredible? If any of you struggle with, well, I believe in God, but I don't know about the resurrection. Paul's saying, then you don't really have a rational belief in God. Like if God made it all, resurrecting it is nothing to him. Let's keep going. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, right? We know about this. You can read about this in Acts uh, 7, 8, and following. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's saying, I voted that these Christians should die. That's what he's saying. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So let's pause there. Jesus chose Paul, right, as his witness. You guys will have a chance to witness to hope every single day this week. Every single day of your life, you have a chance to witness to the hope of Jesus Christ or to keep your mouth shut and be like, oh, yeah, tough times. I don't know what we'll do. Are you being bold? Are you being bold? Not callous, you know, not flippant, but bold. Like staking it out. There's a reason to have hope. Even if the worst comes, there's a reason to have hope. Even if nothing comes, there's a reason to have hope. Because something else will come after it. And one day all of our lives are going to end. None of us are here forever. Everyone is, there's a little bit of fear in the air because people who haven't had to think about death are having to think about death. Right? Right? I mean, if you haven't really had to think about it, the day you do, it is a scary moment because you realize everything you have is temporary. Are you there for folks with a message of hope? That A, it doesn't have to be the end, and that B, Jesus Christ has overcome death? You know, there is an opportunity here. There's always an opportunity to witness to hope. So Jesus chose Paul. I love where it says he saw a light from heaven, um, Brighter than the sun. It's on the previous slide. I don't know too many things brighter than the sun. 
But you knew he was seeing the glory of God. He was just seeing it. God was like, I'm going to need to knock this one out. <laughs> you know, he's like, Saul, God just had his eyes on Saul. And he was watching Saul sincerely persecute the church. Saul is thinking he's doing everything right for the Lord. And it must grieve the Lord to see people who think they're doing what's right for him and they're getting it all wrong. Sincere belief doesn't replace true belief. Let's never forget that, right? And God's grace, we just see it alive here. He just grabs this evil, violent, persecuting, semi-religious man, and he shows him his glory. And that's all it takes. All Paul had to do was see Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? All he had to do was see him. And he knew he was wrong because he had seen the resurrected Son of God. And Jesus says, why? Right? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is a, a fancy goad. I don't think this is the kind of goad they had in mind. So it's a long stick, sharp point at the end. You're, I mean, how do you move a bunch of like 400-pound oxen when they want to go the wrong way? right? You got to like tase them, right? It's like an old school taser <laughs> and they're moving them and the, and the oxen don't want to go and they kick up their feet and you kind of jam it in there and they kick against it goes, he goes, why, you know, Paul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus? But it's, and Jesus doesn't say it's hard for me. Did you notice that? He says, it's hard for you. He's persecuting Jesus in the church and Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against God's will. Where do you kick against the goads? Where do I kick against the goads? Good question, right? Where do you resist God's will in your life? Where do I resist God's will in my life? The good news is this. Jesus Christ didn't zap Saul with a thunderbolt here and be like, well, I got you. The game's up. Right? Here you are persecuting me. It looks like I'm the boss and you're the loser. He takes this moment to draw Paul from death to life. Right? From persecuting to church planter. And Paul experiences a resurrection right on this road. Do you see how it happens? This is why always Paul always talks about being in Christ. Being risen with Christ. Paul's first resurrection happened in this very moment. He went from being a dead man to being a live man. If you're in Christ, your first resurrection is when you're born again. You went from death to life. And all the little ones after that are God just sanctifying you by faith, stripping out that old selfish ego and replacing it with a will that says, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. And so even when we speak to hope for ourselves, the hope I want you to walk away with today is this. God's plans for you are good and they're righteous and they're powerful and they are plans to build you up. First, he might have to tear you down a little bit. It might be through sacrificial love. It might be through seeing your sin. It might be through suffering. There are ways we have to be torn down, but then God raises us up again through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Jesus Christ sent from on high into our lives. Isn't that radical? You have the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit in your life right now. You don't feel like it. You get tired in the morning, tired at night. We don't feel like resurrected humans, but there's a very profound way in which you are. The spirit of the resurrected Christ dwells within every believer. And so we have a reason to be hopeful no matter the circumstances. So don't kick against the goads. 
Receive the will of the Lord for your life. And part of that is to be a witness to hope in hopeless situations. Not that you have the, quote, medical solution, right? But you know the truth, which is that the Lord is sovereign and Jesus Christ's death on the cross is all it takes to be made right with God. All right, I want to read a little more and then we're going to move toward the ending here. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's an understatement, isn't it? (laughs) But declared first to those in Damascus, that's the city he was going, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What did he declare to them? That they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He said, this is what I'm here. This is why I'm here, because I preach the hope. I preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I preach repentance. That's why I'm in prison, Agrippa. That's why they want to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, who's the governor, with a loud voice said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king um, knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's saying, look, everyone knows about Jesus. This wasn't hidden away in some hut in Bethlehem. This went down in Jerusalem. There's thousands of people in Jerusalem at this very moment who preach the name of Jesus. Agrippa knew it. Do you know who Agrippa's dad was? He's the man who had James, the apostle, killed. Agrippa the one is the one who started the persecution in the church. Here's his son now listening to Paul. He knew all about the church. Paul says, you know the customs. He was a Jewish man, but not well-respected at all by the Jews. Paul says, you know what happened? The only, only question that matters is, do you believe? It doesn't matter if you know it in your head. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Look how Paul moves in on him. Paul's heart's, I, I believe, broken for this man. He's looking at this man with all his robes and all his money, and all he sees is a broken sinner who desperately needs Jesus Christ. He sees a man who's literally shacking up with his sister, and he sees these people just trapped in their sin and their immorality. He is not impressed at all by their earthly stature. Let's not be impressed at all. Look at the heart of people, and if you see they need Jesus, offer them hope. Paul's heart's bursting for this guy and for Festus. He's no, he's talking to three people right now who, should they die, would not be resurrected to life. 
They don't have any reason to claim the resurrection of life. He's looking at three people seated up on their high thrones, and he knows that when they die, if they die at that moment, they're going to be resurrected to everlasting shame and contempt, and Paul doesn't want that for them. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul says, yes, I would in such a short time. I'd love for you to become a Christian. I'd love for you to see Jesus Christ. I'd love for you to share the hope I have. Then you could be a king who has hope instead of a king trapped in immorality with no hope. Agrippa wasn't ready at that moment. It would take God's grace if he was ever to turn to the Lord. Then the king arose, and the governor, and the Bernice, that's Agrippa's sister, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. We got the irony, right? The prisoner is trying to free the king. (laughs) You got that? The prisoner is the only one who has hope. God works in strange ways, and he loves to take the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Peter said this toward the end. Speaking to a church under trial, he said, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, right? Being realistic about things. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying, be equipped for today. Be ready to take action. Be sober-minded in your thinking. But set your hope, right, your hope, fully on the return of Jesus Christ. I'd like to leave you guys with that thought today, okay? Be ready, sober-minded, ready for action. But your hope, don't tie it to finding a vaccine, a cure, a change, or avoidance. Set your hope fully on the return of Jesus Christ. And know that every little mini-resurrection until then is for your good whether it includes repenting from your sin, sacrificially loving and giving of yourself, or even suffering, whether just in pain and physical or suffering, most especially for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.